Hi, hello captives and captive friends and welcome to GCP 24, the first episode of our second season, GCP 2020. I hope you've all enjoyed a productive start to the new year and have not been missing my dulcet podcast tones too much. I am very pleased to say that legacy specialists R&Q remain the headline partner for the next 12 months of the Global Captive Podcast. But in addition to our regular episodes every two weeks, we will also be providing bonus content in those off weeks, those previous off weeks when you were missing the Global Captive Podcast in the form of our GCP Shorts. These will be 15 to 20 minute episodes focused on a very specific topic or theme. So for example, in the coming months, we will be releasing GCP shorts on everything from captives in a hard market and parametric triggers to writing third party risk and employee benefits. So as ever, do stay tuned. Make sure you are subscribed on your app of choice, whether that is iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, soundcloud or any other but let's get back to the here and now as we develop our true global credentials even further i'm delighted to bring the next 30 minutes or so to you exclusively from johannesburg south africa where i was very fortunate to spend the week commencing 20th of january talking to a few local captive experts joining me as guest co-host for this deep dive into the south african captive market and its captive owners is Matthew Bezadenhout, leader of captives and risk finance solutions for Marsh South Africa. Matthew, welcome to the pod. Well, happy to have you here in sunny South Africa, Richard, and glad to be here. In this episode, we'll also be hearing from Gert Kraywagen, a big name not just in the South African risk management community, but internationally as well. Gert is director of risk at hospitality giant Sogo Sun, and is also the current president of EFLIMA, the international umbrella organization for risk management associations around the world. In the second half of the episode, we will be joined by Ernie van der Pfeiffer, an expert in cell captives here in South Africa and a Joburg-based partner at law firm Clyde & Co. So Matthew, how would you describe the general attitude and awareness of captive solutions among the South African risk management community? So I would say the awareness has been building in recent years, specifically for risk retention in alternative risk transfer vehicles. And there are a few reasons for this. So progressively hardening insurance market is one of these reasons. Brokers are struggling to find capacity and placements are done under double, sometimes triple digit figure increases. Many risk consultants are now advising their clients that have strong risk programs and well-managed risks that they no longer have to be affected by the claims profile of other market participants. In addition, the economic conditions outside of the insurance industry and the advent of the fourth industrial revolution are further driving efforts of clients to enhance resiliency. And one way in doing so is diversifying revenue streams. So good risk consultants understand this concept and advising their clients as to how they can use these vehicles to provide third-party insurance to their client base via affinity-type solutions. And then at the same time, this further assists in building first-party retention capacity through third-party underwriting profits. As a developing economy, lowering barriers to entry and providing opportunities for smaller market participants to enter the insurance industry is also key. So for us, alternative risk transfer vehicles, specifically cell captive structures, are enabling this. Now, cell captive 
structures are fairly unique to South Africa in some ways. And South African insurers claim to have invented the concept of a cell captive in the early 1980s. The structure of a cell captive differs slightly from that of a protected cell company in terminology and in legal form as well. So think of the structure as an apartment building where the insurer is the building and the Class A shares are individual apartments available to corporate South Africa as cell captives. At the moment, as per last count, uh, we have over a dozen cell captive insurers and the total amount of cells uh, for, for those insurers is about 300 cells or so. Wow. And of this around, 70% are third-party cells. Then two-thirds are short-term cells as well. So there really is some traction in this space. I would say another aspect that is fairly unique to South Africa is that we have a government policy entitled Broad-Based Black Economic Empowerment. And the aim of which is to enhance the economic participation of qualifying black South Africans following the inequalities of the apartheid regime. With the goal of enhancing this participation, the insurance industry, Senfree, the Center for Financial Regulation and Inclusion, has performed an industry-wide study. And they actually released a report in July 2018 that identified that third-party cell captives can help to reduce barriers to entry, encourage entrepreneurship, and build capacity. So this is adding another specific use case for cells. Uh, in terms of attitude, I think historically captives, including offshore captives, used to be the risk retention vehicle of choice for most corporates. However, with the changing regulations in terms of the insurance and tax acts, wholly owned captives have lost some of their allure. This has resulted in moves to cell captive structures and contingency policies. A contingency policy being a subset of policy available from a cell captive insurer written on its promoter cell rather than on an individual cell. Contingency policy is a pure self-retention insurance policy where the insurer is responsible for the regulatory and solvency burden. Great. Uh, that's a really, really good intro uh, to the South African ma uh, market, uh, Matthew. And I think I'm particularly, particularly find it interesting you mentioned the real desire for corporates to engage in, in third-party risk uh, in, in potential captive or sell captive structures because we see so much of that development in, in Europe and the United States as well. Uh, companies looking at affinity products um, and there's, there's lots of movement in that area. So it's great to see South Africa is, um, and South African corporates have a, has a, have a similar approach. So um, in regards to South Africa's existing captive owners. What types of South African comp companies typically own standalone uh, captives? And is there kind of a, a minimum annual insurance spend, for example, that would make a captive feasible? Sure. So the types of corporates that we're seeing in South Africa that own captives are mainly financial institutions, uh, mining. We have a lot of mining clients here at Marsh in South Africa. So um, there's a lot of captives that are being advised to these clients. Then fuel producers, manufacturers, media and entertainment, we have a, a few of those here, retailers, and even national arms suppliers. So the list is quite broad, and it spans quite a few different industries. I'd say in the last three years, a few of these corporates reviewed their captive for effectiveness, and they did so mainly due to the increasing solvency and regulatory requirements in South Africa. This review has actually resulted in closing down of some of the captives uh, for an alternative risk retention vehicle. So, as I mentioned, contingency policies, cells, all of these less uh, onerous ownership structures. Cell captives and contingency policies are priced at a percentage of gross written premiums. And the crossover point from our calculations 
for captive to start to make economic sense is somewhere in the region of 150 million rand in premium, or if you convert that, about 8 million pounds. On another angle, third-party sell captives can prove attractive for firms with large client bases and then the extensive client's information to leverage, as well as the associated affinity product attachment points. This then turns the discussion from a first-party cost consideration or insurance spend to a third-party business development case. So again, I think some of the comments you made there about kind of increased solvency measures and regulation is that will definitely sound familiar to our to our listeners um, outside of uh, South Africa. You mentioned the um, hardening market in your original comments. Can you just expand on that, perhaps? Because obviously, the fact it's you, you're going through a hard market here in South Africa as well is kind of matches the kind of global trend on that front. So, what are you seeing particularly here in the hard market? Sure. So, South African insurers reinsure internationally, and then. Obviously, the hardening international insurance market therefore impacts the South African insurance market in terms of capacity as well as pricing. We also find that international markets don't always understand South African insurance risks. Uh, An example of this would be the tailings dams in the mining industry. So what happened in Brazil, the failures in the dams in Brazil, is actually considered quite remote for it to occur in South Africa, for example. Furthermore, many of the the larger entities in South Africa cannot place their whole insurance program in the South African market. So we see combined placements with corporates sometimes uh, placing 100% internationally. Other clients turn to self-insurance for this aspect, which is obviously good for any of your alternative risk transfer vehicles. Some significant domestic claims experiences as a result of SA's high crime rate, large industrial and bushfires that we've experienced in recent years, there's the listeriosis outbreak that happened in recent years as well in the food industry. All of these things don't really help us um, in terms of a domestic factor for the hardening market. Altogether, we're seeing hardening across all lines, notable hardening in DNO, commercial crime, liability insurance, and to a slightly lesser extent, assets. We also expect the hardening to continue into 2020. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sounds sounds very familiar, particularly on the DNO and crime side. And I, th- I think we, in, certainly in the UK, we're expecting the hardening market to continue uh, throughout 2020. So regarding this this hardening of the market, you, you mentioned that some companies in recent years have, have thought it appropriate to, to close down their captive. Do you think that uh, a hardening market such as this could be a prompt again for companies to reconsider having a, a formal uh, self-insurance vehicle? The hard market is definitely affecting interest in the space. The need to reinsure into international markets combined with the topic of covering uninsurable risks, as insurers are less likely to entertain this concept, is further fueling interest in risk retention vehicles. Contingency policies are on the uptake. They are often the first step towards sell captors for those risk managers that are slightly more hesitant, as the contingency policy only requires that premium be contributed and no separate capital calculation is made, as with sell captives, so less onerous in this aspect as well. We are also seeing an increase in engagements around captives with clients that are looking to enhance the maturity of their risk and insurance programs, often initiated by brokers that have an understanding of captives' um, in this specific area and how they can help. Well, one uh, South African organization that does already own a captive is uh, Sogo Sun, as I mentioned at the top of the episode. The Johannesburg-based company owns more than 100 hotels and 13 casinos. It also has a very sophisticated approach to risk and insurance management. And so I sat down with their director of risk, Gert Kruagen, to find out a bit more. <laughs> 
Togo Sun um, is Africa's largest operator of hotels and casinos. We have, or the company has, 125 hotels in total and 14 casinos. Um, 125th hotel just behind us is in the final throes of completion. Uh, the pre-opening audit by the risk people will be done next week. But subsequent to my joining in 2009, uh, the company uh, demerged. It's split into two. Uh, the hotels and casino companies are now separate. Uh, Togo Sun Hotels is um, obviously the company running the hotel division, and Togo Sun Gaming is the casino company. Both of them are listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and I'm fortunate enough to continue being the, the risk manager for, for both or the director of risk. So I look after the total spectrum of risk that's from governance risk, strategic risks or risks to the strategy all the way through to pure and operational risk which means I look after the insurance as well. The company uh, had uh, a captive in the Isle of Man called, very originally, Sogo Sure Insurance <laughs> Company Limited, which now currently belongs to uh, Sogo Sun Gaming. Exactly who the owner will be in the not-too-distant future, we are not 100% certain. It'll probably uh, be transferred to our major holding company, Hoskin Consolidated Investments, or HCI. So, which means that the ownership will move up one level from Togo Sun Gaming to Togo Sun Gaming's ultimate parent. Great. So, so my next question is is, is regarding the captive. So, you mentioned uh, it, it's in the Isle of Man. Um, can you explain kind of how long that's been there and and typically what it's what it's used for as well? It's been there since late two thousand and nine, early two thousand and ten. We registered the company late two thousand and nine, but it's been operating since two thousand and ten. It's used to place all the insurances of the, the the group, if I can call it that. It's now no longer just one company, so the group. Um, and most of the reinsurance we place into the, the London, Lloyd's and continental Europe markets. So having a captive in the Isle of Man gives us uh, easy access to that. Uh, also, uh, the, the captive appointed the broker in London as the placing broker. And they then utilize their colleagues in Johannesburg and Zurich to uh, also place um, reinsurance. Uh, the guys in Johannesburg that look after us from a day-to-day -day basis from the brokers are then just purely the servicing broker and, and not the, the placing broker. I've had a long history with um, the Isle of Man captive community. Um, started there in 1997, establishing a captive, and then over time... Uh, developed and evolved and split and so on so i know the the jurisdiction i know the people i know the companies and vice versa they know me so we get along very well with one another and one of the prime reasons is the lower level of capitalization that isle of man requires yeah so one of the questions i'd like to ask actually on regarding the isle of man is and correct me if i'm wrong but there's quite a, a long association between south african entities and the isle of man i understand i think it's got quite a close uh, banking and financial services relationship but that and that goes that goes further way back and predate predates captives is that right absolutely 
I suppose the primary reason for that would be um, the time zone. It's similar time zone, similar language, similar legal framework, legal system, the Roman Dutch law, so we understand contracts and so on. Um, it's, it's also an easy place to do business with. It's not so easy to get to, but it's a lot easier than, for instance, Bermuda or Vermont or Cayman. And I think Isle of Man management and South African management often think the same uh, about similar problems so it's easy to deal with one another so then and we're going to come on to a bit more discussion on uh, particular domiciles and the pros and cons of being here in south africa compared to offshore uh, later but in terms of the captive itself how has the uh, captive's role and profile kind of evolved and changed over his lifespan is it is it used for the same rationale today as it was Uh, 10 years ago, for example. The biggest change is that some of our sister companies in the wider Hoskins group um, also now want to utilize um, Zogosure and the Isle of Man to place their insurance through because they can see the benefits of doing that, not only financial benefits, but other as well. So the main reason for uh, utilizing uh, Zogosure and the Isle of Man uh, are still the same as, as they were before. But the biggest change is having some of our sister companies, including a company called eMedia, uh, utilizing uh, the captive now. Uh, eMedia owns a um, 24-hour news channel. You may have seen that ENCA. Yeah. Uh, six television stations, a radio station, um, film studios, television studios, etc., etc. So we place a chunk of the insurance through Sure. Some of the insurances, because of the legal requirements, we still have to place directly in, in South Africa, but where we can, we utilize Sogosure. Uh, so um, thinking about the, the value that the captive provides the group and to Sogo's son, what, what, how would you define the, the, the primary benefits of, of the captive? What, as a risk management tool, what, what, what advantage does it give you rather than not having a captive? The two major advantages that we currently see that we won't have without the captive is number one, being able to access um, London, Lloyd's and continental markets directly without having to go through intermediaries over here. It also means that we are able to balance our portfolio, our insurance portfolio between South Africa and the ones I've just mentioned. Uh, Currently it's about 50-50, so 50% of the reinsurance placed in South African markets and about 50% overseas. But over time that moves, sometimes it's 60% local, 40% overseas or vice versa, depending on the conditions of the market. Um, We see the South African market mostly uh, lag the international market by typically 18 to 24 months in terms of trends of uh, either increases or decreases in rates. So we are able then to utilize that to our, our benefit. So uh, you, you touched upon the market there, and actually uh, it wasn't in the original questions, but I'm going to ask you uh, kind of what your view is then on the, the state of the current insurance market in South Africa. Of course, in Europe and the US, we've seen a real hardening over the last 18 months or so. So you starting to experience that here in South Africa as well? Absolutely, and I think it's even worse locally than what you're seeing in uh, Europe and, 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 and London it's hardened significantly. Some risks have become uninsurable. Uh, insurers are just walking away from certain kinds of risks. Unless uh, you have a very good risk management program in place, you'll pay the price in either high premiums, high deductibles, high self-insured retentions, etc. Um, no, it's, it's really 
very hard at the moment. Also, um, line size has been reduced. Insurers are not taking a, as large share as they used to in the past. So all of a sudden, everybody's struggling for capacity where insurers in the past would easily take 50% of a particular risk. Now they um, hamstrung to maybe taking 30 or 35%, sometimes even less. Yeah, that, that sounds very familiar to what we're experiencing uh, at home. Um, and presumably the, having the captive in place just gives you another tool in terms of flexibility to step in in the cases where you're having hard renewal discussions. Absolutely. It also gives us access to a different set of markets, um, reinsurers that would not normally deal with insureds directly. Uh, because we have the captive, we are now able to access them as well. So. Um, it helps a lot from that point of view. And then also the fact that we can take a much bigger share on the chin in terms of self-insurance, which always pleases reinsurers. So you're also uh, very active, Hertz, in the South African and international risk management communities. Uh, I believe current president of uh, FREMA? Correct, yes. Yeah. So South Africa actually has quite a long history with regards to uh, to captive utilisation, particularly compared to the rest of Africa. So why do you think large South African corporates have um, traditionally or, or have previously uh, been going down the, the captive route for some time? Where South Africa is located and who they do business with exposes South African corporates to um, best practice worldwide. So we don't only deal with Europe or the UK. So we deal with what I've just mentioned, plus the US, plus Japan, plus China, plus the other Asian countries. So we see what happens in the world. And obviously, one of the best practices in terms of risk and insurance would be having a captive. It's also evolved over time where I think there may be a handful of South African corporates with offshore captives now. Um, because of the advent of the very large um, cell captive insurers in South Africa. As you probably know, South Africa was the pioneer in establishing cell captives. So it's a lot less expensive, a lot, lot less onerous to just rent a cell with one of the big uh, cell companies and run your uh, insurance through there like a captive. It's basically rent a captive. And so you haven't been tempted to, to jump down that route yet? You're still happy with the Isle of Man uh, approach? We have sales within uh, some of those companies for particular reasons, like um, employee benefits. We put through a sale in uh, God Risk Life, which is one of the big sale captive mm-hmm. companies. Um, things like uh, motor car or auto insurance. Um, doesn't make sense to put it in the Isle of Man and also there's some legal impediments to do that so we run some of that through um, a captive uh, a cell captive at, at card risk as well so we're utilizing both Paul they say there's more than one way to skin a cat and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities yes Richard it is You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles 
in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. We are going to get into the use of cell captives a bit further now in a chat with Ernie van der Pfeiffer, an expert in cell captives here in South Africa and a partner at law firm Clyde Co. As far as I'm aware, the first cell captive insurer entered the South African market as far back as 1993 and initially focused on self-insurance for large corporates and the provision of a platform to large retailers to share in the insurance profits or products which they sold to clients. Up until as recent as 1 July 2018, sell captives was from a regulatory perspective treated very similar to ordinary insurers and the term sell captive did not exist in our regulatory framework. They were essentially ordinary insurers who were granted a special dispensation to issue different classes of shares in terms of their licensing conditions which allowed them to share in the profits of a ring-fenced pool of business. With the advent of the Insurance Act on 1 July 2018, cell captive insurers were classified as a separate class of insurer and are only allowed to conduct insurance business through cell captive structures, which is highly controversial in our market. So why, why is that highly com- controversial then, Ernie? Well, if you look at the major players in our market, they all, they've all been conducting a hybrid insurance business model of both cell captive and non-cell captive business that was placed through the promoter cell. And if these amendments are implemented by our regulators, we will see disastrous financial consequences for the bigger cell captive insurers. Ernie, you wrote an interesting piece in December 2019 suggesting that new regulation could see a decrease in a number of cell captives in South Africa. Before we get into that legislation and its potential impact, could you just outline the history and development of cell captives here and the current regulatory environment that they face? As I mentioned earlier, cell captives date back to 1993, but was largely unregulated. They were only regulated because of the fact that our local regulators had to approve the issuance of different classes of, of shares. Um, but with the advent of the Insurance Act, all cell captives um, had to be had to obtain a specific license to conduct cell captive business. So how is the uh, cell legislation and regulation here different from established international jurisdictions such as Guernsey, Gibraltar and Bermuda as you understand them? Although they are very similar to PCC arrangements that are found in the jurisdictions that you've just mentioned, they are quite different in that the assets of each cell are only contractually ring-fenced through the conclusion of a subscription and shareholders agreement and are not statutory segregated. The risk of cross-contamination therefore exists in South Africa, but solvency two principles have been included in our regulatory framework and the solvency principles apply on a cell level, which reduces the risk materially. So what kinds of, uh, what kinds of companies and intermediaries are, are currently making use of, of cell captives? Cell captives are very popular in the South African intermediary space due to the fact that commissions and other forms of fees are highly regulated and in most instances capped. So we do find that intermediaries tend to hold or are quite interested in holding, sh- holding shares. The regulator, however, identified this as a material risk due to the risk of conflict of interest if the distribution channel are allowed to share in profits. And they've until recently mooted strict regulation of intermediaries holding a cell. Um, you previously referred to my, my prediction that the number of intermediaries that hold cells will be drastically reduced in 2020. Well, um, it took all of three weeks 
for my prediction to be proven wrong as the regulator towards the end of 2019, did a on the proposed legislative amendments and decided to allow intermediaries to hold shares as long as they act as tied agents of self-captive insurers. In other words, they are only allowed to act on behalf of one self-captive insurer and cannot sell a suite of products. The other type of intermediary that we see in our market is, is called underwriting managers, and they are in your market in the UK and elsewhere. They are usually referred to as MGAs in that space. They are relatively unregulated and they are allowed to own shares due to the fact that they are not in the distribution channel and only perform binder type of functions and hence the risk of conflict of interest being a lot less in that space. You do see, um, I, won't, I won't name the names, but I am aware of quite a lot of large South African insureds and, and corporates that do make use of, of cell facilities, either in an intermediary-owned cell company or, or one that they own outright themselves. Is that correct? I think you're absolutely correct. Um, cell captive models are very popular under the big retailers and cell phone companies, and that's largely due to the, the lower cost basis and unwillingness by those entities to be heavily regulated. We also recently introduced group supervision, which has actually forced a few retailers that actually had cell captive insurers to dispose of them. As, as we've mentioned, the South African regulatory system can facilitate captive insurers, and there are uh, plenty of um, South African corporates that do choose to have their captive or sell captive here in South Africa. But we also see South African-owned captives in the established international insurance jurisdictions. What are what are some of the considerations for companies when they are considering domiciling domestically or offshore? What are some of the kind of uh, pros and cons or the, the way-ups they have to make? I would say that the main consideration, first and foremost, is the type of risk that the entity is underwriting, be that in hard or soft currency, as well as the location of the markets the entity is reinsuring into. So Parliament in South Africa enacted the Insurance Act number 18 of 2017 in July 2018. One practical implication is that foreign insurance entities operating in South Africa as insurers must be registered as required in terms of Section 5 of the Act, and uh, this therefore adds a complexity of foreign domiciling of South African-owned captives. Changes in the Taxation Act also reduced and even eliminated some of the historical taxation benefits of offshore captives. And then other considerations I would say for captive domicile include the presence of a robust legal and regulatory environment, proximity of support services, and insurance industry representation for insurance stakeholders because you want to ensure uh, sustainable po- sustainable policy is being advocated. One, I think probably it's fair to say that the two of the most common, from my knowledge, um, international jurisdictions used by South African companies are um, the Isle of Man, because it's, it's got a long banking relationship with um, South Africa, but also Guernsey. I'm aware of quite a few South African uh, Guernsey uh, captives. But one of the ones that we've heard a lot of talk about in recent years has been Mauritius and has been previously talked up as an emerging captive domicile, also has self-captive legislation. Is that a a realistic or or popular option for South African companies? I think it is. Uh, Mauritius possesses many of the previously mentioned beneficial factors that we spoke about just now. So Mauritius introduced its Captive Insurance Act in 2015 as an extension of its PCC legislation, which was introduced in 1999. So although they're relatively new, they do have a robust legal and regulatory environment. 
and they have relative ease and effectiveness of setting up a captive. Fiscal regulatory measures also provide advantages in the form of no withholding tax on dividends, there's no capital gains tax, and the company's tax rate is also fairly attractive. Although, as mentioned, some of this benefit has been impaired by South African legislation. There's no exchange control in Mauritius, so funds can be held in any currency, and therefore currency risk can be mitigated. More specifically, in relation to South Africa, corporate governance in Mauritius mirrors that of South Africa in terms of the king principles, and this alignment and familiarity is often of value as well. Geographically, travel to Mauritius for us is also like a four-hour flight, so that's fairly convenient. I would say if I had to look at past concerns, that would include the um, OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development's inclusion of Mauritius on their blacklist for tax havens, but they've been removed from that since. Similarly, the European Council listed Mauritius for inadequate substance requirements in February 2019. They have, however, been very good in their responsiveness to this and um, appeasing those worries because they were removed from the list no more than a month later in March 2019. Uh, Finally, did I mention that they make for quite a good beach holiday? (laughs) You didn't, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very much aware of that as well. So, But you've got great beaches uh, here in South Africa, right? That we do. <laughs> yeah, the guys in the Cape, in Cape Town, like to say that they got the most lovely beaches, but those aren't too temperate. Uh, it's a little bit cold there. So if you're looking for a beach in South Africa, go back to my hometown, Belito, uh, in Natal. Yeah, I think that's, that's the place to be. Great. Well, I think between, between my uh, intricate knowledge of Cape Town and your intricate knowledge of Natal, I think we can provide some good tourism advice to some of our listeners keen to come and visit uh, here in South Africa. Well, that is all we have time for uh, from Johannesburg. Uh, and thank you to all of my guests on a very special episode recorded here from South Africa, and particularly uh, from uh, you, Matthew. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, Richard, and I look forward to seeing you again in the future. See you next time, captives. <laughs>